Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. The Futures and Foresight community comprises a remarkable and diverse group of individuals who span academic, commercial and social interests. At FuturePod, we seek to honour and learn from the wisdom of those who have established and developed our field, to connect and support the practice of those who work in this space, and, most importantly, to give pathways and inspiration to those who wish to join us in creating humane and better futures for ourselves and those who come after us. Jay Gary is an educator, futurist and entrepreneur. He is the current chair of the Association of Professional Futurists, which for many of us is our professional association. Through the 90s, he worked as a millennial consultant, helping cities mark their passage into the 21st century. After that, he worked for a decade teaching strategic foresight to graduate students. In 2003, Jay founded Peak Futures, an educational company creating high-value virtual learning environments that empower emerging and mid-career leaders. He's the author of over 30 publications, including a 2017 co-authored piece on building foresight capacity, which documented the APF's full foresight competency model. Welcome to FuturePod, Jay. Thank you, Peter. Great to be with you. Great, Jay. Well, question one for our guest, Jay, is we ask people to tell their story about how they became part of the Futures and Foresight community. So what's your story? I think, you know, the hinge point in my story goes back to really 2002. And it was at that time that uh, an academic at Regent University invited me to come and do a doctoral you know, seminar for their students, doctors, strategic leadership students on foresight. Uh, now, I had been a practicing futurist, you know, for six to eight years before that, or maybe 10 or 20, depending on how you define the field. But uh, it was that point I, I kind of got into the world. I, was, I became an accidental academic. <laughs> and, and this whole, uh, and you probably know the journey, uh, that you, you, you conform or you, and you transform yourself in a way of, in this case, bringing value to mid-career professionals that were earning their doctorate degrees. And at the same time, I earned my PhD over the next four years and, and taught for 10 years at the Master of Strategic Foresight and to Doctor of Strategic Leadership with Foresight Concentration. So it, that was sort of my hinge from a practicing to a professional. And, you know, some of the mentors at that point uh, were Peter Bishop, um, who I think you've interviewed and uh, worked at the University of Houston and now is where Teach the Future. And I had met Peter a decade earlier uh, at the World Future Society, which I was attending and speaking at since 96. And I remember being invited to this residency in September of 2002 to Virginia Beach. And I got there, you know how you go to do a gig, you throw together whole slide decks. I got there and stepped into the biggest hurricane that had hit that community for 30 years, Isabel. So, I, you know, I was drawing my little stick figures on flip charts and teaching 30 doctoral students for four or five days. Peter Bishop was to fly in and he couldn't. So I phoned him on the phone, you know, speakerphone. So 
but it was a lot of fun. It was good to get into an academic community and um, a community of practice. So in that sense, I just began to draw upon uh, the community of practice of foresight. And, and uh, not that I hadn't had relationships before that with people, but they, they were more conference relationships rather than vital working relationships. Richard Slaughter who, from Australia, uh, Foresight Institute or Foresight International in this case, was a great mentor of mine, and uh, and uh, and I invited him out to region. And he his his thinking in social foresight and critical futures, you know, was very impactful. I think later your journey and and others and integral futures was very important for me at that time. So my my journey, you know, before then I was an activist. Um, I would call myself maybe an alliance activist, and I worked in association, you know, management leadership. Uh, I was very impacted by the year 2000 as sort of a magnet hung in time. That's, you mentioned I was a millennial consultant. And so I helped cities, communities, um, faith communities uh, prepare for the year 2000 as a point of a milestone for goals, but also for celebration. In that case, 2000 was Jesus' 2000th birthday. So <laughs> it made a lot of sense for me to hang out and write books, the star of 2000, about uh, the 2000th anniversary of, of, of Christ and what it's meant to the Holy Land. I spent a lot of time in the Holy Land, but I was very involved with sustainable development goals. We say today back then it was Agenda 21, Millennium Institute and uh, Center for 21st Century Studies and others. So I was very involved in the activist side of faith in the, in the 90s, a kind of a decade of destiny thinking of what could be done, uh, not only in evangelism, but also in sustainable development. So and as futures, you know, we look at trends, but we also look at agendas and, and renewal of communities. And 2000, the millennium and the bimillennial was a great uh, opportunity for Jubilee. Uh, yep. the, the funny thing about it, you know, is that that whole, it, it, it's kind of like the world that was, you know, our lives <laughs> you look back and the world goes away because 911 or, or the, the war on terrorism has kind of eclipsed all of that open moment for global leadership, right, after the Cold War, sort of eclipsed globalism in certain ways, and we've gotten to maybe a barbarized world. But in one sense, um, my, my introduction and my story to foresight, you know, you know started uh, in my practicing my craft early in my career in uh, alliance leadership and uh, education, and then it, it moved into foresight, right, yep. with the World Future Society. So, yeah. Other, um, and you mentioned, um, and, and did you actually train in this space or what was your actual, where did you actually, you know, train Gosh. and, and uh, build your first yeah. craft? You know, my craft, um, I had a lot of mentors along the way. I think I date back, uh, it was 30 years ago. Um, I was a conference planner for a network that Billy Graham founded. And um, I was, I planned conferences. We always were looking at agenda, you know, for the future. But I remember a fellow named Tom Sign who, you know, wrote quite a bit in the space to the church, hearing him speak. And uh, it was the first really futures I encountered. Uh, later, David Barrett, who was the editor of the Workers' Encyclopedia, did a lot of forecasting. So and I, and I did a little work with David and university databases. So uh, it was more of a it was more relational for me. I made later met a gentleman named Richard Kirby with a network of religious futures that was more ecumenical. That was a lot of fun meeting folks from different communities, whether Jewish futures or Islamic futures and others. So 
I, so many people in my life, you know, they, they, they touch you. Wendy Schultz, as an educator, I, I met or saw her teach in 98 or so at the World Future Society, said, I want to be like Wendy. She's <laughs> extraordinary. So I think each of these people, different points, you know, you're, you're touched by and you, you're mentored by in some way, maybe at a distance, not maybe in any relations. But my, my practical training foresight was uh, – the practical training, I came off of an undergraduate degree in management and then later did a lot of operations research, some forecasting in this space, as I mentioned, a lot of, uh, but it was just natural. I think the academic road to foresight kind of came at the doctoral level with uh, a PhD in leadership. Yep. So in that case, sort of the anticipatory sides of leadership, the, the, uh, the adaptive sides, you know, those, those whole facets of what does a leader do to make sense and to cast a vision and to, to uh, take people in a direction forward. So that sense, the, the, but the actual methodological things, I think I owe a lot of it to Peter Bishop, the way I taught futures, he helped me quite a bit. Yep. I did a lot of curriculum development, but, um, but there's a lot of practices that overlap with leadership and management. So, you know, I'm not always, I'm not totally given over to corporate foresight. I think there's social foresight, bottom-up practices are more civic and governmental and participatory. But uh, but I worked in a school with business and leadership, and we it became the largest doctoral program in the United States. And, and you know, it's and and it was a a, a vast thing. I was sort of their specialists on. Uh, strategic leadership and foresight so yeah and i wonder too um given i mean for some of our listeners they are you know they're starting out you know in their careers whatever their careers are i mean were there particular challenges that you faced in actually you know getting a foothold in the in the foresight space that yeah you could speak to about the challenges and also how you responded to them yeah i think challenges uh, it's interesting you'd ask uh, just this past fall i taught a course on based on what's called leadership emergence theory by Bobby Clinton, he functionally says in your, in your life, you know, he draws a timeline and says you have a foundational phase in life, right? You have a general phase of work, you have a focus phase, and then you have a convergent phase, you know, um, you and I might be bumping up against a convergent phase. Mm. Uh, you know, it's the fourth quarter of life, you know, almost, but, um, for me, you know, the early challenges were logistical. Usually when you go from foundational to general work, it's logistical. Can you support yourself or can you get enough project work? Can you do enough business development? Can you, can you capture an idea or service or service stakeholders? Whether for me, it became project work. I founded a peak futures before that was known as a global service associates. And um, it's now I've, turned it over to others and the, it's grown to a lot of folks doing a lot of different things. Uh, but still, the, the, there's that logistical bear in life. And so I, the challenges were there at certain points. Beyond that, I think moving into focused work in life for me and focused work in life for me was uh, came to the point in the mid nineties or so right before I don't want to be a echo. I want to be a voice. I want to, you know, I want to move from, from doing to being right. And that, that sort of, that sort of transformation that people experience uh, that they're going to come from the inside out in life, not to the outside in uh, not live by convention, but live in, in a creative space. 
for me, that was, you know, stepping out entrepreneurially, stepping out otherwise, that phase of being a millennial consultant. I led a Let's Talk 2000 newsletter and did a lot of projects related to the Holy Land and other places and cities and states and helping people uh, celebrate the arrival of the third millennium and prepare for the 21st century as communities. So I, I, you know, today I, I'm still very active. I'm an associate professor of leadership. I work in the university. I'm, uh, I live in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'm a dean, assistant dean of uh, online lifelong learning for Oral Roberts University. And the, 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 the challenges I'm experiencing now are, have a lot to do with plateau. You know, uh, how do I go beyond my own limits? How do I, not just my own limits, but how do I, how do I bring on team members? Uh, how do I nurture, the, you know, the next generation? Um, and how do I become more than what I am? Not only for the doing to being, the being part, but more the legacy part. Where do I spend my time, invest my time uh, appropriately and multiply myself uh, through others? So th those career challenges that are, I'd say, mid to late career in my life are, are very much revolve around stewardship. You're building into others, building into institutions, or transforming institutions, right? And uh, in this case, in my case, I'm yeah, the spirit empowered movement uh, in, in a faith context needs a lot of transformation <laughs> from uh, from you know uh, uh, narrow to broad views, from more deeper, uh, more transformational engagements. Like all institutions, you know, it needs a lot of help. So that's why I'm I create virtual learning environments, you know, in that context. But I'm, I'm always, uh, the practice that I've had and the career that I've had uh, so far, I just feel like I'm just beginning. I think I have another probably 10 years of active life in terms of work, at least. Uh, I hope to move in a convergent phase at some point. Convergent being you sort of leave everything you know behind and you reinvent yourself again and move into an afterglow phase. I don't, uh, not, uh, I sometimes feel my uh, physical strength waning in certain <laughs> regards. <laughs> but then keep myself fit and you know and uh, yep. so all those things uh you, what you do when you're in your 50s or otherwise uh, are the challenges that i face so thanks jay okay question two is the one where i ask people to to talk to fellow practitioners around either a concept or a methodology or a tool that they believe is foundational to the work they do. So what would you like to talk to the listeners about? My, I think when I look back on my life, what I've used most is just visioning. I've, I've, I've looked at an alternative futures, you know, what could be rather than what is. Yeah. I did that related to, uh, the year 2000 and what could be related to uh, mm. the, the, the start of the 21st century. And I did that. You, you do that in the work each day. I present alternatives of if we made this choice, what payoffs we'd yep. have. I'm always presenting options. And I think being a future is about choice, but I think there's something deeper, Peter. I think you and I have practiced a lot in this space. And I, I think the, being a futurist is, is about empowerment. Mm. It's about personal empowerment and team empowerment. It's about 
understanding the power we do have to call forth a different future, to act today, to change tomorrow. And that acting requires, sometimes you act and then you understand, you make sense of the context, right? Uh, sometimes the sense-making comes before. But uh, for me, visioning has been a way to exercise imagination, you know, to draw upon, you know, inspiration, to draw upon yeah. insight, to realize that, that I'd have no limits, you know, uh, that we can explore the the divine limits of human potential. There are no limits yeah. <laughs> to human potential, uh, other than laws of physics, you know, and all the others. But there's we we can be more than what we are. So could you talk about? I mean, given that I mean, yeah, visioning is one of those processes that yes, it's part of core to our field. There's not a lot written about how to do it. Um, and I'm sure people have thought about doing a visioning exercise with a group of people, but exact, but haven't been sure exactly what it is you do when you do a visioning exercise. So could you maybe just, yeah, just take yeah, an yeah. example and just work through a kind of worked example to explain how you would set up and perform a visioning process and then what you do after that? Yeah, I think there's some great models out there that I've practiced and followed. One is the, it's called future search, which is get the whole system in the room and you imagine, you know, imagine a different world, uh, whether that's in your sector or otherwise. But I think, you know, everything that feeds into visioning is anticipation. And that's, you do your scanning, you do your, your futuring, or in that case, your alternative futuring, your scenarios. So much of, I think, what we do needs to come out of our own stories, come out of our own teams, come out of our own institutes. Uh, I'm often, you know, involved and asked in the ed higher education sector to do visioning exercises or do strategic planning exercises in those regards. So I think part of it is uh, imagining what could be within a certain context. Of course, looking at drivers of change, but also just uh, a blue sky, you know, a blue ocean, and thinking in new paradigms, and then bringing the information to bear that allows people to do that, whether that's provocation, or whether that's alternative, you know, a new perspective. So part of it's working with stakeholders closely enough to do custom training or to do custom work. I'm, I'm probably more of an organizational futurist now. I, I, I was independent for a long time. And so I'm you know, very involved, just been involved in Imagine 2030 exercises with my university, where we, I would say we're doing more adaptive, you know, thinking, adaptive planning, trying to frame out how we might balance both on-site, online learning to get to a point where there's contextual situated learning in the future uh, that's, you know, learner-based and, and dynamic. So, I mean, so, I mean in, so, so, for, so for example, I'm going to push you again to go into the actual craft itself because, as a, um, I mean, in terms of how you do visioning, I mean, do you do visioning as a spoken exercise? Do you do it as a closed eye process? Do you introduce, yeah. you know, do you introduce elements to take people deeper, that kind of thing? Yeah. Most of my, a lot of my visioning has been uh, thought leadership, you know, writing, speaking, right. you know, let's say blowing the trumpet. Yep. Um, I'm always dealing with, uh, uh, I have a keen eye to anniversaries, you know, coming up, you know, in different ways. Uh, 
And so you can always lean things that way or, but visioning is a great deal of reinventing the future in that way. So to me, there, there are some great guidelines. I mentioned future research. I, I'll send you some other resources that I've used in yep. uh, courses on visioning, you know, after the interview, people can, you know, click on and follow. Okay. But it's, it's, it's an, un, it's, it's, uh, you know, ma- imagining a world that's uh, different is always the first, it can be the first step to, to being awoke in our time, right? To being awake to the opportunities that are, beyond us but that we need to move into i mean do you find that people embrace visions embrace uh blue skies readily or do you bump into resistance yeah i i think you know going back to there different people have different styles different approaches and uh, many times within organizational context things are very transactional and I work very transactional to provide value for my employers, right? You know, it's, it's, it's efficiency, it's effectiveness, it's, you know, uh, enrollments, et cetera. But on the other side, there's always the transformational, not just the transactional. And transformational and leading in a transformational way comes back to relating to people in such a way that they're, that both the initiator and the collaborators are transformed, yep. you know, morally, uh, in, inwardly, and expanded, uh, and a sense of intellectual attraction, uh, you know, support in terms of uh, interpersonal, and then the enterprise itself steps out and does audacious things, and does things that you know increase their value and service to their broad stakeholders, whoever they might be. So in that sense, I think that's where the, the, the real magic of visioning is, is not so much the vision, it's the, it's the transformation yep. of relationships and trust and, uh, and the risk that you take yep. together to be different and to, uh, to defy, defy reality, right? Defy gravity, <laughs> creating the future. So I, I, a friend of mine recently said he, he was describing how he got in the field. He's South African. He says it was a bungee jump into the future. <laughs> so, excuse me. Visioning should be a bungee jump into the future. I think you know you, yeah. you, you experience the pull of the future and you and you're pulled into it. Good. Thanks, Joe. Third question is the one it's often difficult for our practitioners and so forth to talk about, but it's really the question of how you sense make the future, how you, the, the futures you see emerging, the futures, as I say, that you may not like, but they certainly are energizing and attracting you. Um, so how do you see the near to, you know, the near to medium term, maybe out 30 years uh, from where you sit? Wow. You know, uh, I think I mentioned before that uh, the, the war on terrorism became sort of a stepping into an alternative universe for me, <laughs> a future I did not want to enter, uh, and, and uh, the clash of civilizations by Huntington, all of that, that, uh, you know, we had, we were first precautionary raise that we shouldn't, and we're still wrestling with immigration, you know, I mean, look at Europe and the, the rise of uh, migration and the 
the, the rise of populism, nationalism. So there's a lot of what I guess Richard Slavert called downbeat futures or autocratic rules rising in, in the U.S., Russia, China. There's, goodness, there's uh, irrational behavior, Brexit, you know, uh, ethno white nationalism, racism, and uh, trade wars. I'm, I'm, it's cyber, you know, trust in institutions, trust in technology is, uh, is at a way, is at an eclipse right now. But I think as futurists, we, we realize pendulum swing. We realize that uh, a zeitgeist of an age can turn on a dime. And we realize we need to, you know, create the future, not just forecast or not just anticipate it yeah, and respond to anticipate it and adapt and respond and not just uh, match you have to imagine something beyond it this is where i um you talk about mentors i, I need to make a comment and and after the interview folks want to click on a link but i some of the significant thinking i did as a person of faith in christian tradition was i had to really think jesus seriously and i wrote a probably around the turn of the millennium, I started thinking and writing on the future according to Jesus. And what that taught me was that Jesus was deeply embedded in his context. He deeply saw a dead end <laughs> right ahead of him in his society. And he deeply found a way to move beyond it. And that, that is the end of, goodness, 1600 years of Moses, the end of he saw it a hundred years of Roman rule. He saw it two or 300 years of Greek culture. He saw an end. Most of the time we think Jesus saw the end of the world. He didn't. He saw the end of tribalism of his day. Uh, he saw the end of Jewish national state. He saw the fall of Jerusalem. So he, we remember as quote a prophet because he got it right. <laughs> or he had, now we, we think of his cross but his cross was sort of a social embodiment of the end of the nation. He linked it to the, uh, his generation ending. And he if so, foresaw a civil war, much like H.G. Wells, the founder, yep. you know, father, so to speak, uh, uh, in the 20th century, uh, saw World War I, World War II, and all the deep, dark things. Jesus saw that, but he saw that conventional path, but then he saw a he saw the counter path that was, that was creating the crisis in that sense. It was nationalism, Jewish nationalism, not just against Jewish Hellenism, right? Globalism and nationalism were in a death, death march, right? And he, he, he explored a creative path, die to yourself, die to the lower order, rise to the future that's to come. So a lot of my foresight and, you know, what I see today is, is, is we are at a, an impasse, you know, it's a Spangler, I know it, integral futures and critical futures worlds. You've talked a lot about uh, the Spangler and others. You know the uh, end of the West, decline of the West. Yep. Sor Sorokin's models. You know his. Uh, I remember Sorokin talked about. Uh, I mean, it was four phases of a civilization. The spiritual impulse is, is the first thing. It goes to a, an integral state. Goes to a secular state. Then goes to a chaotic state. You know, we, we, we've seen this happen twice, I'm speaking here from the West, in the ancient worlds, you know, the, this progression from the Axio age down to the Roman age and ending, and then the Western age begins in Constantine and the end of Christendom and then the end of the secular age now, perhaps, and, the, you know, the age of chaos we might be in. The question is, how do we get to a global age? How do we get to a tripolar world where you have a 
an Atlantic civilization, a Pacific civilization, a vibrant Indic civilization in 20, 50, 100, 200 years. So to me, that's the kind of questions I ask. And how do we go beyond, how do we go beyond a conventional world to a, and not fall into a barbaric world, but fall into a transitional world uh, with sustainability and with justice and with uh, greater measures of peace, you know, make a change in a paradigm, right? So that's about, you know, what we're all about. So in 30 world, 30 years, I hope we would see ourselves in a transitional world, right? Not a conventional world uh, where it's just managerial capitalism, you know, trying to maximize everything or not a barbarized world where we're in a locked conflict of civilizations and social instability, but perhaps in a transitional world that could see a non post-growth economy or see uh, a world beyond in the 22nd century. Yeah. I mean, there's that thing of, I mean, you say that you started as an activist and I always remember Isaiah Sada's advice or admonition to me. He said that, you know, if you study the future and you do not, and you see, you know, your job is not to support the current institutions that have got us into this mess. Your job is to put the foot up against them and give them a good shove. Yeah. And yeah, it's not enough to observe and understand and study what is happening. You actually need to get out there and actually push and shape the things, support the things that you think are taking us somewhere or oppose the things that aren't. And I think that's, that's, you know, what, that's our calling. <laughs> that's our vocation. Uh, and we're in a, a large community of being that is, is, is pushing toward a more human future. And yes, I mean, I'm, I mourn, religious futures, you know, has not promised what we've, we've, has not been aspirational to the degree we could be or delivered by more secular futures the same way. We have to find a, a, a way forward, a third way, and that's, uh, but it, it, it's, it's an enlightened citizenship, and H.G. Wells said it's the, what, it's the, uh, the future world comes down more and more, the race between catastrophe and education catastrophe. Yep. So. And we're on the sides of, we're on the side of education. Let's hope <laughs> against catastrophe, self-catastrophe. Yeah. Thanks, Jay. The fourth question is the Agile Chestnut of how do you talk about what you do and how you think and how you um, practice? when you encounter people who don't actually understand or know what it is that you do? Yeah, I, I, I don't bring a lot of terminology with people initially. I, I try to speak their language. Uh, to me, foresight, it's very simple. We live by hindsight, foresight, you know, insight. In other words, we live looking backward. We live looking forward, and in between those two, we live by insight or or today, you know. Uh, and to me, you know, it's from my own experience, the pull of the future and its promise, you know, is foresight. The, the weight of history and the prom and the and the, the dream of history, you know, is hindsight, and we learn from the past, not to repeat it, but it's that insight is really the goal. It's action. It's insight that leads to action. As you were saying, the change and to shake the trees, shake the system and to create a more human world. Um, 
So to me, it's very simple. I mean, there's a lot of academic theories behind this that, you know, might be, you know, future time perspective. It might be self-efficacy, you know, all, uh, self-leadership, all kinds of, you know, theories that are consciousness and, and human empowerment bases. Uh, but to me, foresight's nothing more than, than uh, our ability to experience the pull of the future, to embrace that doorway ahead of us. And what's often unknown, it's new land and, and to venture forth to create a new world. What do you, if you have a person who's possibly responding with a sort of hostile slash cynical response, a person who says, you know, it's all just talk and you know, I haven't got time for that or that kind of thing. Have you got a kind of a, a strategy for responding to that? Yeah, I think we, uh, foresight, uh, one of the great benefits I've had is to work at all levels of it, of practice, you know, of theory, of, and there is methodology in between the, the high philosophy of foresight and, and the, the aspirational dreams of a new world uh, and the, the lower, you know, in the trenches of, of, of creating the future act, there's, there's methods. And so I pretty much, you know, embrace and, and, uh, and APF, Association of Professional Futures, we have a competency model which has a six foresight practices. So if someone's resistant, I back up and see what do they need. Yeah. And our six practices are framing, uh, scanning, futuring, visioning, designing, adapting. Framing is, you know, uh, how do we make sense of where we're at, right? And what is the sense of the project that we're embarking upon, right? Who are the stakeholders? All that framing the, the larger questions, uh, business model questions can even be. Scanning is is environmental scanning. It can be as broad as social intelligence down to business competitive intelligence, so everything in between. But it's looking at cross impacts and everything. Futuring is the three is the baseline and alternative future, or dive, or, you know convergent thinking for the baseline if things continue the same divergent alternative futures if what ifs but it's not good to say you know what you know what's next or or what if we need to say what now and that's the visioning you know yep. uh, and the designing and the adapting of institutions of teams of of uh, creating the future in that regard so i think it's always permission-based, like permission-based marketing, permission-based futuring in every context. And it's always a conversation and it's always, you know, servant posture and it goes from there. You know. But I think it's always experiential. So it's conversation. And I think I really want to applaud. I know folks have, uh, you've had an interview with Stuart Candy, but Stuart's representative of this entire experiential world that yeah. emerged and, uh, or Cornelia Daheim over in Europe. Um, I mean, there's a lot of people that are involved in this type of practice for clients and for students or otherwise in governments. Uh, but I think that's, people need to, to ex tangibly ex experience what the future can be at its worst or its best, yeah. right? And what we can be at our best, our better angels or our darker tendencies, right? Yep. And then respond accordingly. Yeah, I think Rowena Morrow, I just interviewed Rowena, she said that always start what always start where the client is and start with what what problems they have now. And yeah. and then just try and help them. And yeah. Generally speaking, if you start where someone is now, 
they'll generally respond positively. If you start trying to tell a person where you think they need to go, they'll tell you where to go. Yeah. 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 Oftentimes, I mean, I'll have to sometimes go back to the business model generation. It's like a little chart, you know, it's like a, to to try to understand their model and then, you know, what's their business model 2.0. A lot, it's just uh, understanding their worlds and, and understanding their, their ability to enact change within them. Sometimes people don't need foresight because they, they need planning, right? Or yeah. they need implementation, right? They need efficiency. They need effectiveness and planning. They don't need uh, entrepreneurial, aspirational. They, they need to shore up their own house. That's right. They, they don't need a vision. They just need to commit. Exactly. Exactly. Thanks, Joe. Okay, last question is the one where we we leave it as an open question and you did suggest that you wanted to talk about the Association of Professional Futurists. Um, so, yeah, do you want to tell the, tell the listeners about the APF? Yes. Uh, you know, for, for those that are listening, uh, if you're looking to find those who are working the future, you won't find a better community than the association. Uh, in t- 2002, I remember walking in a room in Seattle, Washington. It was a, a little salon that, that what led to the APF, about 25 people stepped into it to ask, should we think about professionalizing futures and how would we do that? And, and there's a lot of early career people and some mid-careers in that room. But I mean, my life was changed radically. I mean, it was from that network I drew upon that to create programs like Regent and do other kind of consulting work that I did. Uh, but APF is an extraordinary uh, extraordinary community of practice. Uh, and it's intergenerational. It's, uh, it's international. Uh, we just passed a mark where uh, there's more people outside the U.S. a member of APF than inside. It's a good threshold for us. And I, yep. I'm, I'm happy for it. And um, Europe and uh, Oceania, or it became in tide in terms of, I think, 88 members each. Uh, Canada was like fourth, you know, 50, 60 members. Uh, it's a 500-member body, about a 15-year history, more 16 years. But APF is, uh, holds gatherings, it holds workshops, uh, it features the work of its members. Um, I think... Uh, we, you and I have been in a lot of conversations, Peter, directly and indirectly writing and speaking about the need to, uh, or there's questions, is, is foresight a profession? And I think we've always not tried to say nice things about ourselves. We tried to be very modest and understated, but we've always emphasized foresight may not be a profession, like in the occupational sense, but it is, uh, uh, it does have standards of professionalism and service and ethics, and it has a larger body of knowledge. Uh, Richard Slaughter, I hope he shared with you that uh, he's embarking on the knowledge base of future studies 3.0. He did, yes, he did. And APF is, is committed to, uh, recently to be a partner with that in it as emerging leaders, a fellows project, we call it. And uh, Andy Hines has uh, been on our board uh, previously as a co-editor with him. 
And so in terms of advancing the practice of futures, ad advancing the, the, the collegiality of those who work the future, you know, APF uh, is a great place to, to be and <laughs> its wealth is in its people and its access uh, to, to people's lives that are fellow members. So I think I'd invite folks to, uh, to join us. We, we have, in one sense, uh, domestic gatherings, speaking from U.S., one year. The other years, we have international gatherings. This coming gathering, at least we'll be doing something in Mexico City in September, uh, concurrent with the World Future Studies Federation. It might be a one-day professional development. It could be a gathering as well. We're still defining that. I think Mexico City is uh, October 10 to 13 at some point in uh, 2019. Uh, we're, we're, we're doing short, starting to sh do short professional development courses, but then also recognizing what other, our members are doing for others in training and in consulting uh, and otherwise. So the future of our, of our craft is really what APF is about. And I, uh, I, we have a long ways to go, Peter, to think about how people practice it, whether they're analysts, whether they're managers, you know, whether they're consultants or thought leaders. Uh, but I think that's where I've, I've been fortunate to, to uh, receive so much from APF. You know, for years I take my students to APF because it was a, you know, it was an open bar reception <laughs> before a major conference. Yeah. Um, but then later, you know, I got involved not in investing in emerging, you know, futurists uh, all across the world. So, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm like you. I mean, I've I've been there since 2002 as well. I mean, it's a it, it's a volunteer-run organization. The members themselves are the organization, um, and you've got a you've got an amazing and you've had an amazing group of volunteers who've worked to actually create the institution. Yes, and I think you know. A couple of years ago, I did a study. It was it the future of the foresight profession? It's really the future of the foresight practice. And the, again, it was a it was a Delphi technique study. I've I've uh, methodologically I've probably done as as many Delphi studies as anybody you know yep. in, in in APF at least. But uh, in it, 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 I used what was called the factor analysis to derive three. Uh, quantitative scenarios, which first scenario was assimilation. Our craft would assimilate into other, uh, other practices, whether that's design or whether that's uh, analytics, you know, or big data, whatever it might be, every, or scenario planning, right? You know, all those assimilation. And in one sense, we're probably one of the most collaborative practices you can find, right, Peter, yep. in terms of we, we cooperate in the sandbox really well. The other thing with our practice was ac academicization. In other words, we would focus quite a bit on a conventional path today, perhaps strengthen, you know, the academic uh, pathways or the training, you know, just-in-time learning on the job pathways, the competency-based learning, but our, we wouldn't necessarily expand the market. It'd, all, it'd, all, it'd be all sort of a push, you know, of, of a foresight rather than market pull. Uh, the third scenario was uh, did a, had a lot to do with credentialing or um, certification of futures, but much more from the point of view of the third scenario, which was the least likely, uh, but sometimes the most preferred, would be professionalization of futures from the point of view of 
of uh, creating learning pathways, career ladders, understanding how people practice foresight as an entry level in their career versus the first level supervisor versus a, a business unit leader or senior exec, understanding all that appropriate training to where future provides real value to enterprises, whether they're in government or business or otherwise. That kind of future requires uh, a lot of leadership. And we, APF as volunteer of uh, organization, so APF itself would need to transform to create that kind of world. And so I, uh, 2019, this is the end of my first year as chair of APF. We're moving into 2019. We're looking at a lot of, uh, Inst a lot of capacity building related to technology, moving from a member management system, I trust, to an association management system or engagement management system, uh, much more full scale, and redesigning, reinventing what we're doing to provide much more uh, value to our members, and then to have a more open basis to where we relate to anybody, anywhere, in other, other regards, not just members. And so where uh, APIP itself, you know, is, uh, is growing up, we're a teenager moving in, but uh, it's been a fun ride for a lot of us. And, and I'm looking to continue to give, but also to have others pick up, you know, the leadership. I was really proud this year. Just want to give a shout out to Jason Swanson. Did an extraordinary conference uh, gathering in Pittsburgh. He works with Knowledge Works, one of the, the leading uh, learning futures in the states, and um, and then Praktisha Singh uh, from Toronto is uh, led a futures festival with a team of uh, folks from design from OCAD, a fantastic. So each of those are, you know, twenty years behind me in terms of uh, leadership, you know, age-wise. Yeah. And so uh, the bell curve, you know, of people in APF, it's not all people in their 40s and 50s. It's no. people in their 30s and 20s. And, and it's, it's, it's a, we have some long tails, too. <laughs> the other, and you and I are about to get to the long tail. But uh, I've been very pleased with APF because, uh, you know, we work the future. And there's no, no one else that does in that regard. Uh, there's a lot of people that think about the future. A lot of people, you know, champion a futures mindset or a lot of people you know, think uh, scholarly about the future in terms of science anticipation, but there's nobody that, that's committed to, you know, working the future for everyone everywhere, making the future work for everyone everywhere. Thanks, Jay. Okay, well, look, thanks very much for taking the time out to talk to us and the FuturePod community. Um, it's been a pleasure catching up again, Jay. Likewise. Thank you, Peter. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now. Mm -hmm.